Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about gender in an era of post-truth populism, pedagogies, challenges, and strategies. And I'm delighted to be joined by Penny Jane Burke and Julia Coffey, who, along with Ros Gill uh, and Akana Kanai, are two of the editors um, of this book. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was a good good stereo uh, thank you. That, that's great. Um, it, it's funny with academic books, um, and I often say this on the podcast, but um, sometimes listeners uh, might not know just how long it takes to do an academic book, um, and in particular, actually, how long edited collections um, take to come to fruition. Um, and sometimes um, the kind of the length of, of uh, production um, can mean a book feels, you know, a bit out of date or maybe a, a little bit old or speaks to debates that maybe things have moved on from. But actually, gender in an era of post-truth populism feels like it has been written almost precisely for today. And the debates, uh, the ideas that it thinks through couldn't have been sort of more, more prescient, I think, um, as we look around the, the kind of current uh, national and global situation. And it'd be good, uh, maybe if we start with, with, with Penny, um, it'd be good to know a bit about that kind of long gestation of the book and, and I guess how it came to be, you know, kind of so important and, and so relevant today. Oh, thank you, Dave. That That's such a lovely um, compliment about its timeliness. And um, yeah, I mean, we're actually really proud of the journey to get here um, because it it means that there's been a lot of different voices in the mix um, over a few years. And um, it really started with a special issue um, that I co-edited with Professor Ronell Carolison, um, for teaching in higher education. And um, that special issue explored teaching in relationship to post-truth populism, um, really, um, you know, as, um, uh, you know, the emerging um, sort of situation with 
Trump being elected, Brexit had happened, and we were just fascinated with how this was affecting pedagogical approaches and pedagogical strategies. Um, And that particular special issue has a real rich collection of articles, and I would really recommend those. I think that they're still very timely, even though that special issue was um, published in 2018. Um, And it's a real nice complement to this book collection. But we built on that special issue, and um, Julia Akane uh, Raz and I actually formed um, uh, an organizing committee for the International Gender and Education Association Conference um, late in 2018. So as this was being published, the special issue, we were also putting a call out for papers, and um, that conference um, attracted people from all over the world, and we had such a, um, a rich um, conference of debate around the rise of post-truth populism and what that meant for gender and education. And our keynote speakers were Ray Wynn Connell, Jane Kenway, Susan Page, and Sandra Hale, all of whom have a chapter in the book. So um, as um, the conference finished, we thought, what a, what a rich collection of, um, of uh, contributions of, over the conference. And this would make a, a really wonderful volume. So we put out a call. We also um, invited our keynote speakers to contribute to the book. And, um, and so that took, I guess, about um, 18 months, maybe a little bit more from the planning to publication. Um, and, you know, we've really aimed for this book to be part of this journey as opening up pedagogical spaces to think together with readers about the emerging issues related to post-truth populism and its implications for social justice, gender, feminist pedagogies, and feminist activism. So yes, it's taken a long time to get here in, in lots of ways, but um, you know, we feel like it's, it's really kind of created a really important platform for diverse voices, perspectives, and contributions across different contexts. Yeah, I, I think it really has actually, and, and some of the case studies um, capture that sense of, of global diversity, actually. Um, it's not just um, a story that that's linked to any one um, kind of education system or, or any one national context. We should probably talk about, uh, I guess, the kind of the, the key term that's in, in the title of the book. This idea about post truth populism. I, I wonder if you could kind of sketch out what that actually means. I mean, you mentioned the kind of political moments of, of, of particularly 20, 2016 and and uh, the kind of the years that have followed. But but what what do you mean by post-truth populism, I guess, kind of why does it matter? Why is it important um, to think about, um, particularly actually in, in the context of um, a gender perspective? Mm. So we've, we recognize that populism has emerged in various formations over time and space. And so we're not suggesting that populism is necessarily a new phenomenon, but that it does have contemporary significance in different ways across a range of different geopolitical contexts. So again, we're, you know, we're not trying to define this in any kind of rigid way, but the book um, aims to examine how post-truth populism can and does deeply undermine the hard-won gains of decades of feminist knowledge formation, feminist pedagogies, feminist activism, but also in doing so opens up space for reclaiming feminist intervention. Um, 
And this is about a shared and ongoing commitment to feminist knowledge-making activism and transformation um, for which the book really rests. So that's, that's, you know, kind of underpinning the project of this book. But as a highly manipulative framework, post-truth populism appears to rest on some kind of alliance of a notion of the people, which then is used to serve authoritarian aims. And it deliberately works to deepen social division, divisions and resentments and to create opposition to what is constructed as an elite. And feminist scholars are part of that so-called elite. Um, and it really sets out to attack expert forms of knowledge in a contempt for anything that is constructed as intellectualism. So recent examples have been attacks on expert knowledge, about the importance of vaccination, for example, or the ongoing oppression of refugees and asylum seekers, and the denial of the scientific community's expertise about the human impact on climate change as some you know, contemporary examples. And the term post-truth became the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, as we're all familiar with, in 2016. And in the same year, the Trump administration coined the notion of alternative facts. And this emerged as a response to mainstream news media reporting the relatively small number of people who attended the Trump's inauguration ceremony. And over time, this move towards post-truth politics has continuously acted to damage the fundamental principles of democratic systems that have in many ways been taken for granted in countries like the USA. And chillingly, we have just witnessed in the past week the historical and anti-democratic reversal of Roe versus Wade in the USA, with the ongoing strengthening of movements to undermine women's health and reproductive rights through the growing strength of a national and global anti-abortion movement connected to the rise of post-truth populism. So our book explores these kinds of challenges and complexities to consider the question of gender in relation to post-truth populism, and also to think about the possibilities for feminist pedagogical interventions as a form of resistance against these harmful populisms that are playing out in the contemporary um, world in in different ways, Um, but there's similarities to trace through. I might, if I may, bring, bring Julia in, in now. And, and, and one of the things um, that um, happens quite quite early in the book, in, in Jane Kenway's chapter, is this idea that um, post-truth populism um, is almost kind of inseparable um, from, and, and Penny, you know, you've mentioned this with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, but it's almost inseparable um, from attacks on women, attacks particularly on, on feminism, but also attacks on the university. And I'm interested to know sort of why um, these institutions and, and, and these social movements are, you know, sort of um, such obvious um, and, and sort of depressing targets for post-truth populism. What, what's going on in terms of the relationship between gender and post-truth populism? Yeah, great question. Well, I think gender has sort of been really specifically targeted and, you know, up for debate again through, yeah, through the rise of post-truth populism or just sort of that tendency towards just questioning established things. But particularly, I suppose, 
um, in anti-feminist sorts of attacks, which we have seen, which sort of Trump really embodied, it was about often winding back or questioning the gains that feminism had enabled women and other marginalised groups to make. So it's really about sort of taking back um, some of those hard-fought gains. So gender is really, I guess, the centre or one of the central points, certainly for us as feminists in this collection, to understanding the impacts of post-truth populism because we, you know, all of a sudden the things we write and speak about and teach about are being publicly debated from very um, <laughs> very right-wing or very conservative um, sorts of perspectives and those that, you know, just weren't, um, just weren't really spoken about or as mainstream even, you know, 10 years ago. So um, I think it's been really important and a real kind of challenge to us to think about how we respond as feminists and as people working very much in the terrain of social justice, which is at, you know, that's at stake and that's being specifically targeted through a a lot of the um, really popular, wildly popular commentators um, and also through politics and through what in Australia and other places, you know, we call the culture wars, which have attacked universities and scholars for teaching critical race theory and for teaching gender studies. Yeah. That particularly teaching and, and, and I guess kind of pedagogy more generally is, is, is not just the middle section of the book. There's, you know, a feminist uh, feminism and education section um, in the second part of the book, but actually it sort of runs all the way through almost every, every chapter in, in the book. And, and I'm interested in, um, I mean, there, there are lots of ways to formulate this question. You know, we might think about, you know, why is the university important, but actually several chapters um, try and kind of stress um, the, the limits or some of the issues with universities as, as institutions. So, so maybe, um, the broader question might be why is pedagogy and particularly feminist pedagogy important here? I guess both because, you know, Julia, you've mentioned the attacks on uh, teaching, not just feminism, but also things like um, critical race theory and critical perspectives. But maybe if, if I come to Penny, the idea, I suppose, of feminist pedagogy as being not just under attack, but also providing a critique and perhaps an alternative to post-truth populism. Yeah, and I think, you know, the way that you talk about how this is woven through the book, um, even in the sections that are not specifically focused on education context, because I think feminist pedagogies are about really also critiquing the idea that, um, you know, pedagogy is only about, um, you know, what happens in the formal classroom, and really that pedagogies are about the ways in which we make meaning in the world and our relational interactions in, in um, making um, knowledge and, and uh, making meaning of the world. Um, and, you know, our role as feminists in contributing, contributing intentionally in those processes, whether that's in a formal classroom or in our everyday interactions or in trying to challenge um, particular views that we might see as harmful um, to um, to the rights of, of certain humans. Um, so, you know, we really intentionally wanted to thread through this idea 
um, that pedagogy is is something bigger than just the formal classroom, but of course also is really important to think about in terms of um, formal teaching practices and and what we do in those in those classroom spaces um, to challenge um, these kinds of discourses that come to play. Um, both outside the classroom and in the material that we're that we're engaging with, but also within the classroom too. Um, and we also, I think, you know, um, kind of conceive the book as pedagogical in itself. You know, the book is really about opening up debate and discussion about these problematics and these challenges. Um, so we're really not about trying to provide fixed solutions or anything like that or rigid definitions. Um, we're about trying to raise important questions and explore those with our readers to help to examine some of the complexities and challenges that have been raised by post-truth populism that perhaps are not being explicitly considered. Um, and also to help contribute to creating the conditions for ongoing um, feminist intervention through um, feminist knowledge formation, pedagogies, and praxis. Um, So that's been really important in the ways in which we've conceived of the book and the structure of the book and, and, you know, inviting the authors um, to contribute to the book as well. Um, And, you know, part of this is a focus on you know, the relationship between um, questions about our pedagogical praxis and the politics of knowledge and knowing um, within the context of, of um, the challenges posed by post-truth populism. So we ask a, a number of questions. Early on in the book, in the introduction, you know, we, we um, frame the introduction around um, questions which we, we come back to um, later on in the conclusion as well, as an, as an invitation to join us in considering, you know, what are these challenges? What do they look like? And to engage the reader in thinking about that from their own um, locations and their own work. Um, but also, you know, just pointing to, um, you know, the, the importance of um, feminist contributions over decades around... Um, problematizing um, knowledge and truth um, and what that means for our pedagogical interventions because feminists have pointed to the constructed um, and or situated nature of knowledge and truth. Um, Feminists have also pointed out that knowledge itself is gendered in its historical iterations um, in terms of the ways that exclusions and inclusions play out um, around, you know, different um, contested values that are often hidden from view um, through particular knowledge claims like, uh, you know, objectivity, for example, or um, uh, being unbiased and, and so on. Um, so in this kind of um, context in which feminists have argued that knowledge is contextual, fluid, dynamic, constructed, discursive, situated, and so on, um, you know, where do we sit in terms of post-truth populism? How do we intervene? How do we um, locate ourselves? How do we understand um, the politics around knowledge making in this in this contemporary context? Um, 
So, you know, that's been really a, a kind of central theme of the book to think about um, how might feminists grapple with a form of populism that on the surface makes a call to the effective and personal dimensions of knowledge, as do many feminists, but also refuses its relational and um, deliberative elements. Um, and how might feminist pedagogical strategies encourage engagement with, with some of these key concerns and challenges? Um, so, you know, in asking these kinds of questions, um, we're particularly concerned to examine um, the repositioning and rearticulation of feminist interventions in and through and, you know, beyond education um, with explicit attention to um, what we might see as feminist pedagogical principles and aims without trying to suggest that there's any kind of singular feminist pedagogy, um, but that there's a collective power in the process of recognizing shared commitments um, of feminist um, intervention across different pedagogical um, spaces. So, you know, our aim is to bring to light um, the ways that the harmful politics of post-truth populism um, impacts on um, questions that feminists have been engaged with for a long time. You know, the, the, the misrepresentation of, of different groups of people, um, which can be so oppressive. And, and um, you know, as part of this, we want to offer rich material through the chapters to strongly reassert the importance and power of collective feminist scholarly activism and feminist pedagogical interventions, and really to um, continue to highlight the importance of feminist contributions to knowledge-making processes. I mean, you've covered a lot of ground there, and and actually many of those things are in some of the the, the chapters um, themselves. So, um, you know, Susan Page's chapter, Nicola Rivers' uh, chapter, Sandra Hale's chapter, all um, engage, I think, with those um, questions of things like the nature of truth, about um, pedagogical practice, um, about you know the kind of limits of, of particular institutions. And I guess they're some of the highlights uh, for you from, from the book. I, I wonder, Julia, do you have a kind of similar set of um, highlights or themes you, you want to flag from the text um, or are there kind of different and, and distinctive um, elements of the book that you, you think are important to bring out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're definitely connected to the points that Penny made, but um, Geraldo's chapter on, you know, which really centres decolonial perspectives, um, as does Susan Page's uh I think really important and do such great framing um, work and contextual work, but also connect with these issues on a global scale. Um, so, I'm, I'm, and then also there's some great um, contributions around, um, you know, digital feminism and I guess digital implications for engaging in in debate um, online that I could talk about as well, but. Um, I might start start with the um, Geraldo chapter briefly, but um, yes, yeah, so she talks about how the battle for social order is being carried out through gender and sexuality and talks about the Latin American and Colombian context and so it really maps the history of um, the way that the social order is being 
you know, is at stake through these issues primarily, but also is absolutely um, connected to multiple axes and, and cultural articulations like race, nation and, and the broader processes of coloniality. And she sort of calls on us as feminists working in Western contexts to you know, realise the way that anti-gender campaigns can't be dissociated from those political and cultural um, dimensions and those processes of racialization, nation building and coloniality. So I think that's a really important point in the Australian context, which obviously is where I'm located, but also in so many other places. Um, and, yeah, she really situates the ways that attacks against gender or the weaponization of gender um, I guess what the what the end game is there or what the purpose is, which connects to what we were talking about earlier about post-truth populism, which is really to naturalise and shore up those existing power differentials or, or even seek to, I guess, reinstate them at times. Um, so, you know, in, in direct kind of, as we're seeing this week even, in a direct aim to counter or even remove those legal gains like reproductive rights for women, marriage, adoption, adoption rights for same-sex couples and, of course, um, trans rights as well. I mean, Geraldo doesn't talk about all of these in the chapter, but they're all kind of flagged and we're seeing, unfortunately, those sort of um, come to be even more relevant um, in a way that she, I guess, um, situated in her chapter. So, um, and I think connecting to what Penny was saying as well about um, pedagogy in this um, one of the the things I just love about this chapter is um, in using the phrase pedagogy of cruelty um, to try to understand um, the ways that efforts to oppose social justice are mobilised through the public sphere, through global educators or people who become sort of having that role in the public sphere through, you know, really prominent podcasters who might be able to, you know, come to have come to mind quite easily. Um, but that these kinds of modes of new media in, sort of invite um, people who are really seeking to recover some of the rights that were perhaps gained by women that they see particularly men in these spheres, see as sort of then disadvantaging them. Um, and anyway, this she talks about how pedagogies of cruelty that they mobilise through those sorts of um, populist post-truth um, formats effectively train people in selective desensitisation, um, teaching people to develop the capacity to entirely preclude empathy for those who've been marked in the hegemonic world order by otherness, certain women, LGBT plus persons, non-whites, disabled people, poor people and the elderly. And um, she argues that this constitutes a very particular form of moral education and one that fosters cruelty. So I guess that's another way of thinking through how pedagogies work in the global sphere at the moment or through particular new media forms and one that, for us as feminists, we need to, I guess, call call it what it is and also realise that this is the spheres that we are working within as well and that our students and all others in our lives are engaging in, which is a challenge. <laughs> um, so that chapter is particularly a standout for me um, and maybe I'll just briefly mention the digital elements of um, 
of these questions through a couple of chapters through um, Shia, Kem, Gambazoglu, Burger Korea and Ringrose's chapter. Um, they talk about um, how the potential for trolling and abuse online um, was, um, uh, yeah, through a particular uh, example from Professor Ringrose's um, social media uh, a couple of years ago um, where, you know, she posted about uh, her master's in sexuality education and re- received a huge public backlash or amount of trolling that was driven by men's rights activists and, um, you know, it was really quite um, intense, the level of um, responses, but also quite um, abusive messages that were publicly posted in response. Um, and they situate that those types of events um, and those reactions of online abuse um, are you know, don't just impact the people involved but also shape the further possibilities for feminists, women and marginalised people more broadly, feeling like they can have a voice um, online or offline um, and how difficult it is to kind of make any kind of truth claims or dialogue with those audiences through that backdrop of post-truth or I guess that feeling like the capacity of maybe newfound voice for some particular people who are seeking to re-legitimise masculine superiority, they argue. So that's, um, I think, a really um, great example of what what it looks like when post-truth, men's rights, um, populist kinds of um, discourses are weaponised and directed to particular individuals. And I guess in contrast, Anissa Beta's chapter explores the Indonesian context and how young feminists there are able to actively deploy social media like Instagram as a form of digital feminist public pedagogy and to kind of really do very effective consciousness raising and building solidarities among women and young people on themes of women's rights, sexual harassment, assault, rape culture, legal, um, legal aspects more broadly. So um, I guess on the other side of things, that's a a really um, great way of situating what feminism looks like in different places around the world and how important it is to look at what's going on um, in different contexts rather than collapsing all kinds of digital feminism or all kinds of feminist activism. Um, Yeah, looking at it in context. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think it also flagged something that um, came through in, in one of the chapters that stood out for me, which was um, Connell's chapter uh, about the idea of um, not forgetting feminist achievements, both you know practical and um, 
philosophical, epistemological. And, and actually, Penny, you, you know, you'd mentioned the, the idea of, of kind of situating um, the book and its chapters in relation to a much longer history and um, what one of the chapters, um, Jimenez, uh, that, that we've we sort of uh, touched on, you know, talks about things like Sarah Ahmed's work on on complaints and, and things like this. And, and I wonder if... Um, Maybe actually, yeah, Penny, if, if I come to you on this, you could comment on the sense of kind of um, history and um, achievements um, being, you know, kind of important to the story that the book is trying to tell. Yeah, and I think that comes up again and again across the chapters in various different ways, um, which is really important both in terms of understanding that these challenges in some ways have always existed or have existed for a long time that, you know, um, in some ways these are, um, these are ongoing patterns um, that um, of, of um, uh, you know, continual resistance um, through feminist intervention. Um, but yes, I think Connell's chapter is really important too, in terms of reminding us of the, of the power of feminist achievements over time. And, you know, coming back to this point about the important contribution in knowledge making um, as an active um, uh, kind of um, intervention. Um, And, you know, she really urges us to continue to build on this work, um, pointing to the rich feminist literature um, that has emerged from what she calls practical experience in epistemology and education. And I, I really like that, you know, that thinking around, because um, this is kind of at the heart of feminist praxis is, is this relationship between, you know, um, the, the politics of knowledge, of, of, of theorization, and the, the activism and the practice and the, and the transformational aspects of, of the work of feminism. Um, but, you know, she also kind of locates that in um, thinking about um, those histories in the current moment and what might be different. She sort of raises the question about what is new, what, what's going on here? Um, and, you know, she, she points to the problems of knowledge becoming a commodity. And in Australia, I mean, we're seeing this really intensify with a a focus on the commercialization of research and knowledge. Um, And she traces through the false claims made throughout history, um, including the horrific examples of settler colonization, um, to think about, okay, so where are we now and what is new? And she suggests that what is new is a discursive presupposition that has weakened the tension between truth and falsehood that underpins the concept of a lie. And that is what is so powerful about trying to find ways to, um, to, you know, to critique or deconstruct or problematize some of the, the truth claims that are being made and, and, um, you know, under the framework of post-truth populism. And she points to the new configurations of patriarchy that rest in the economic order and in private wealth. And so she argues that the economy has become beyond the control of democratically elected governments, which is really important. And we can see this playing out. And yet, despite this having harmful repercussions 
for women collectively through, for example, the shrinking of the welfare state. Um, concern with economic justice doesn't seem to be on the agenda. And I think this is a really um, important and interesting point that echoes other feminist um, scholars, such as Nancy Fraser, who argues something very similar as, as a kind of undermining of feminist po- politics. And she, she names this, not Fraser, but Connell, names this a recuperative masculinity politics. And this helps to roll back the gains made by feminist activism over many decades. Um, but again, you know, she points us back to the importance of feminist knowledge over generations and its capacity to contest big lies. So, you know, I think what she's suggesting is that we need to um, recognize that and um, and use it, continue to use that. Um, and and she points to critique as being only one side of feminist intervention and suggest that also knowledge-making is another aspect of feminist intervention. Um, so the focus of feminism on collective knowledge formation um, is central to the key contribution of feminist intervention, including to draw from the full range, she argues, of human responses to knowledge-making. So I think all of this is a very kind of um, strong and positive commentary on you know, not just kind of analyzing where we are now, but also thinking about what we can do, um, how we can how we can mobilize all of that um, decades of of achievement and um, and important um, you know literature that's been developed over over many years. Um, I was also interested in Sandra Hale's um, chapter um, because she is looking back throughout her life, and she's taking a very personal account of her her academic and professional, um, uh, I guess, experiences and interventions over time. And she looks at uh, an instance that just stands out in her mind that took place 60 years ago while she was teaching in Sudan. And this particular incident has just stayed with her. Um, which was a student insisted in her classroom that the world was flat. And um, she asked, what tools do critical feminist educators have to engage with such assertions, but still keeping with an ethical position, a respectful position, um, and avoiding any kind of practice of power in which universalist uh, truth claims produced by colonial powers in the global north become imposed on others. Um, so she talks about this and how it's kind of preoccupied her um, long before the current waves of post-truth populism. And she takes us on a journey um, with her, um, considering you know um, deconstructing absolutes such as reason, logic, positivism, and universal universality versus wanting to speak truth to power. And she talks about celebrations of consciousness raising, the rejections of the idea that an unknowing, perhaps ignorant subject needs to be brought into the light, you know, really critiquing some of the assumptions um, that still um, remain around enlightenment discourses and, um, and, and you know, the, the kind of unequal relationship um, in, within education um, of teacher as knower and um, student as, as 
needing to be filled with that knowledge. Um, and she reflects on a desire to validate the experiences of all learners to dealing with hostility and pain. Um, and, um, you know, she's, she's animated by political solidarity and liberatory agendas and um, talks about a re restless drive to self-interrogation. And I actually know Sandra um, very well personally. And, you know, she is just incredible in terms of her capacity to continuously um, exercise self-reflexivity around some of these questions um, of her kind of pedagogical responsibilities and her pedagogical practices. And she suggests that what is required most of all is care in responding to the post-truth era um, so that we do not unwittingly impede decolonizing and democratizing processes in the process of our resistance and that critical pedagogical strategies are more important than they are, than they've, they've been um, ever before. So she kind of... Um, uh, reinforces the the points that Connell is making that really now is the time for us to keep persisting um, with these kinds of commitments um, that you know are not necessarily as I say a singular definition of feminist pedagogy but they're principles that I think we would recognize um, in in our efforts to um, continue to intervene um, in in this context with um, post-truth populism. Um, shall I carry on with some more well, reflections? Or? I was going to say, I was really struck actually by uh, you picking up on that theme of, of what we should do and, and what we should do being, um, you know, manifested in, in various ways um, across uh, different chapters in the book. I, I'm interested to know um, in terms of, well, probably two things. One is in terms of where the project of the book goes next, um, and maybe in terms of, of your own work as, as well, um, because it struck me there were various um, practical things like how universities are organized that the book might speak to. There are obviously, we've talked about, you know, the, the specific moment, not just this week, but um, the particular context that the book speaks to. Um, or are you thinking in, in terms of um, having uh, perhaps kind of concluded this project with the book and, and the need for something different? Um, well, shall I speak first and then I'll hand over to Julia for a moment? Um, I mean, I think that um, in a way the book project um, is, is an ongoing one in terms of these kinds of um, discussions and debates that we want to have with the book and with the chapters. Um, but I see the, um, the project of the book feeding back into um, some of my own interests and my own work in, in thinking about, thinking critically about agendas in higher education around equity, um, diversity and inclusion and widening participation, all the kinds of um, ongoing and, and changing discourses that are arguably connected to, um, you know, the neoliberalization of higher education and don't necessarily deeply engage with questions of, of social justice or critical pedagogies or feminist pedagogies and so on. So, you know, I think that these questions around post-truth populism um, layer onto that another um, 
facet of, of complexity in terms of how do we um, engage these kinds of discourses in ways that are meaningful and that can create, um, you know, spaces for um, deep critical reflexivity and thinking about what it is we're engaging in. Um, when we talk about our commitments, for example, to equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, what are we talking? You know, what are we talking about? Um, and who is engaged? Who is represented in those processes? Who's excluded from those processes? And how are those? Um, you know, how are the the um, meanings being created around what it is we're trying to do? So, you know, I feel that um, this book really speaks to those agendas. Um, and um, is really important to, to thinking about the university's um, relationship to these wider political um, forces and how they kind of intersect um, and either clash or kind of co-support um, and where um, feminist pedagogies are um, in terms of intervening in, in thinking about what they mean for um, for higher education and the future of higher education, who participates and on what terms and so on. So I think it raises some really important questions um, in so many ways. But I suppose from my own professional and academic interests, um, I think it, it really provides another layer of, um, of complexity and nuance to some of those kinds of debates. What about you, Julia? Yeah, um, it's been interesting um, thinking about the reading the chapters again um, in the current moment after, you know, writing them and engaging with them a while ago. Um, yeah, I think the need for these discussions is sort of more important than ever at the moment and I think we we're hoping to continue to be able to have those, I think, through specifically around this project through um, some other um, sort of presentations and seminars that are around kind of launching the book that might give rise to some of those, yeah, um, opportunities, I suppose, to see where these um, ideas could go next in a kind of collective way. Um, I think the book really demonstrates well the need for intersectional and decolonial considerations of gender and the implications of of the uh yeah the really direct attacks I suppose on the gains that have been won um around rights for women um same-sex couples and trans people across the globe um so I think yeah I'm hoping to continue um, working on these themes and and with through the collection, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to look beyond the immediate sort of presentations and launches we have planned. But um, Penny and I work closely together on a range of different projects, so we can we might need to put our heads together uh, with the other editors as well um, to continue thinking about that. Um, yeah, I think it's such an important moment and one that, as you know, we kind of conclude the book with saying that you know, this task is, is urgent and we need to do this work right now more than ever. So I'm sure there'll be others who would like to continue on that and we can, yeah, continue to mobilise together, I hope. 